0: Welcome to You News, the podcast using the power of Univision to bring the news that matters to you in English. Today is Wednesday, December 9th. I'm Andrea Linares. These are today's headlines. Hospitals quickly reaching capacity across the United States as the Pfizer coronavirus vaccine continues rolling out to residents in the United Kingdom. But there are new words of warning about those who may be prone to allergic reactions. Meanwhile, President Trump running out of options after the Supreme Court hands him yet another defeat in his battle against the November election results. And after a series of violent crimes and even murder at Fort Hood, Pentagon leaders stepping in to address problems at one of the nation's largest military bases. This and much more today on U News, transmitting live from our newsroom in Miami. Just one more day before the FDA possibly grants Pfizer's vaccine an emergency use authorization. The White House aiming to have a vaccine administered to vulnerable people within 96 hours. This, as the U.S. registers 200,000 cases daily over the past week and governors across the nation tighten restrictions. Lorraine Gassines has much more.
1: The U.S. on Tuesday registering an increase in daily numbers of coronavirus cases and deaths.
2: There are a substantial proportion of the people who still think that this is not real, that it's fake news or that it's a hoax. It's extraordinary. I've never really seen anything like this. We've got to overcome that and pull together as a nation uniformly with adhering to these public health measures.
1: New cases rising in states like Ohio, California, Texas, Arizona, and Pennsylvania. Besides California, Michigan, and North Carolina have also implemented stay-at-home orders, and governors are also enforcing a 10 p.m. curfew.
2: We will do more if our trends do not improve. That means additional actions involving indoor restaurant dining, entertainment facilities, or shopping and retail capacity.
1: Meanwhile, as the FDA gets ready to possibly grant Pfizer an emergency use authorization as soon as tomorrow, the agency releasing an analysis Tuesday showing how effective the shot was in trials. The blue line is the low rate of people who got COVID after getting the vaccine. The red line represents people on the placebo who got the virus. By the end of the study, of those who got the real vaccine, only eight got infected. In the placebo group, 162 got COVID.
2: We do feel that um, preliminarily that the success criteria have been met.
1: But new reports in the UK of potential allergic reactions are being investigated to healthcare workers reacting badly after getting the shot. The country now advising residents with a significant history of allergic reactions not to take the vaccine. This as questions are now swirling regarding whether or not businesses, schools, sporting events, or even airlines can make you prove you've taken the shot. Quantas Airways saying it is considering requiring travelers to show proof of vaccination before Boarding their international flights.
2: What we're looking at is how you can have a vaccination, a passport, an electronic version of it that certifies what the vaccine is. Is it acceptable to the country you're traveling to?
1: And many companies are partnering with airlines and pharmacies like Walgreens to develop an app where the results of a vaccine could be uploaded to the system and that way act as a vaccine passport. It's still not clear which companies, if any, will require people to show proof of vaccination and if any
0: countries will require it from tourists. Andrea, back to you. Thank you, Lorraine, for that report. And now turning to Washington, President Trump's attempt to overturn the election results have seemingly reached a dead end after the conservative majority Supreme Court crushed any remaining hopes for the Republican Party. Meanwhile, President-elect Joe Biden introduced members of his health care team, revealing what he'll do to combat the coronavirus crisis in his first 100 days in office. Another big blow in President Trump's efforts to overturn election results. The U.S. Supreme Court denied a request from Pennsylvania Republicans to block President-elect Joe Biden's win in the Commonwealth's election. The one-line order was issued with no noted dissents. As late as Tuesday, President Trump said he thought the justices, including three of his nominees, might step in and take his side. During a vaccine summit yesterday at the White House, the president insisting he won the election.
2: Well, we're going to have to see who the next administration is because uh, we won in those swing states. And. Uh, There was uh, terrible things that went on, so we're going to have to see who the next administration is.
0: Trump going as far as appealing to legislatures and the Supreme Court in an attempt to overturn the election he lost.
2: Let's see whether or not somebody has the courage, whether it's a legislator or legislatures, or whether it's a justice of the Supreme Court or a number of justices of the Supreme Court. Let's see if they have the courage to do what everybody in this country knows is right.
0: Meanwhile, President-elect Joe Biden focusing on the weeks and months ahead, revealing three steps he'll take to combat the pandemic.
1: I'm absolutely convinced that in 100 days we can change the course of the disease and change life in America for the better.
0: Biden vowed to sign an order requiring masks where he can and in all federal buildings and interstate travel. He said most schools will be open in the first 100 days and set this benchmark for vaccinations.
1: 100 million COVID vaccine shots into the arms of the American people in the first 100 days. 100 million shots in the first 100 days.
0: The president-elect is nominating California Attorney General Javier Becerra as HHS Secretary, the first Latino name to the post. Dr. Rochelle Walensky, a leading infectious disease expert, nominated to serve as CDC director. And Dr. Anthony Fauci is staying on his role and becoming Biden's chief medical advisor. President-elect Joe Biden is also expected to name Ohio Representative Marsha Fudge to lead the Department of Housing and Urban Development, HUD, and former Ohio Governor Tom Vilsack to the U.S. Department of Agriculture. And with President-elect Joe Biden unveiling key members of his health team on Tuesday, including a Yale professor, Dr. Marcela Nunez-Smith, to lead his COVID-19 equity task force, Biden's decision underscores the urgent need to address critical racial disparities in our healthcare system. And joining us now to talk about the importance of this task force and Biden's pick to lead it is Dr. Kali Cyrus. She's a psychiatrist at Johns Hopkins Medicine. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Cyrus. Welcome.
3: Thank you for having me.
0: So, you know, Dr. Nunez Smith from your time at Yale, what was your reaction to Biden picking her to lead this group so important?
3: So, first of all, I just think I was incredibly proud because I, she is such, such an honorable and really good clinician and researcher. But I think most importantly, just symbolically, as an African-American, well, I know she's from the Virgin Islands, but as a Black person, um, it makes a huge difference, I think, to the Black community to see someone who looks like you leading the task force, the task force and being on the COVID-19 um, task force itself. And, you know, I think she was speaking on a show yesterday and talking about how nine nine out of 10 times when you walk into a patient's room as a black doctor, um, if it's a black person, that they end up saying, I feel better and reassured by just seeing you there. So I think it is, it's is—it's a monumental decision and an incredibly smart one. She's also an incredible researcher. If she, Her research runs the gamut between looking at disparities of physicians and training, also in services themselves. So the fact that he's nominated an equity researcher and... Um, itself on the task force is also monumental in addition to the great work she's going to bring. What would
0: you say will be her top priorities in leading this task force?
3: Yeah, so I think all the all the um, buzz right now is about the vaccine. So I imagine that whatever protocols they're putting in place to um, ensure that the vaccine is received by healthcare workers and also those in nursing homes, that she's going to start by making sure that there's equity in the distribution of those two groups. So we already know that in terms of nursing homes, that those with more Black and Hispanic um, um, residents are, are dying from COVID at higher rates. So I can imagine that she's going to make sure that whatever we're putting in place is going to ensure that we are reaching those specific population groups, as they're more than likely to, to suffer the most consequences as a result of COVID-19. And in general, they have high, lower vaccination rates as a population. So she's got her work cut out for her. But I imagine that she'd be st- she'd be sticking to whatever protocols they have that are that are that they've been putting in place to sort of just get started and making sure that um, the strategies are equitable in themselves.
0: Now that you mentioned that in recent polls, people in the Black community have expressed more hesitancy about getting a vaccine than other groups, and this is what Dr. Nunez-Smith actually said about that. Let's go ahead and take a listen.
3: So, you know, a couple of different things. I mean, one question is why we might see that, and I think it's important to be um, very upfront and honest and acknowledge a shameful history in our country of a medical experimentation on Black and brown bodies, in particular.
0: Dr. Callie Cyrus, where do you think this distrust comes from?
3: Well, I think she hit the nail right on the head. And so, even if you know, let's say, I have an aunt who's mistrust uh, mistrust the medical establishment. Um, and she may not be able to exactly name because of the Tuskegee experiments and because of experimentation, but she can certainly name the high rates of disparities that exist today, maternal mortality, and just access in general. Um, so I think it's just it's, there's a pervasive mistrust of the government in general, even if you can't name the specific events that occurred. Um, so I think there's going to be a lot of work to combat the fact that we need to trust the government who's helping us get this vaccine. You know, the government wasn't the ones who created the vaccine, even though they may have been working in conjunction with Pfizer. But I think a lot of this is going to have to do with how do you trust how do you trust a healthcare provider, maybe your local community clinic or whoever your family medicine doctor, or, or you know, someone who can get people into the door to get the vaccine. And, and so that's gonna mean that there are providers like myself who are black, who are gonna have to really speak out to our patients and communities of color to convince them that this is not one of those cases um, where it's worth it to just not trust and, and hold off on getting the vaccine.
0: As a psychiatrist, you argue that Biden's health team is missing a key component, and that's a mental health professional. Why do you believe having a mental health professional would be so important?
3: Yeah. So first of all, Biden recently actually appointed a psychiatric nurse. There's not much on the internet about how what her her practice setting is, um, but I think that just goes to show that there needs to be more information out there about who's going to be speaking to mental health issues on the COVID-19 task force. And so my reasons for highlighting this are one that primary care settings are already not the best at diagnosing mental health disorders um, uh, in general, and I don't mean that as a you know as a Dig. But more than less than half of people who go in needing a diagnosis of depression actually come out with that diagnosis after visiting primary care. It usually gets misdiagnosed as some other sort of vague presenting um, symptom. And so we've already known that folks who, who one, had COVID 19 are now presenting with really vague neuropsychiatric symptoms. We've been calling it a bit of like a brain fog. So you can imagine how many people are going to start presenting to their doctors complaining of vague symptoms like brain fog and not having a psychiatrist or not having a neurologist or someone who's trained at diagnosing um, the nuances of of how depression and other mental health illnesses can present. And then secondly, I think we're forgetting that so much has happened in 2020. Yes, we've had, you know, this pandemic, but we've also had so many layoffs. We've had kids out of school. We've had deaths in families. So there is amount of psychic trauma that's occurring that I think is being unaccounted for and how it's going to overwhelm our already overburdened mental health system. Where are these people going to get treatment? Um, and so most people tend to present to their primary care doctors and then after that I'm not sure where they're going to get referred just due to the growing shortage in general of psychiatric providers, of you know, um, a lack of beds in, in inpatient hospitals. So I think on so many levels, there needs to be um, more than just one uh, mental health provider, I think, on the task force or a separate task force that's dedicated to this issue, um, just given, I think, what we're walking into after, after the pandemic.
0: This is a very interesting conversation. Thank you so much, Dr. Kali Cyrus of Johns Hopkins Medicine. We know that this coronavirus pandemic has upended our lives in so many ways and has affected so many families, both mentally, physically and emotionally. Thank you so much for your time. Take care. And another political news. Another person in President Trump's orbit has reportedly tested positive for the coronavirus. A source familiar with the situation said, aides have been told Trump campaign lawyer, Jenna Ellis contracted the virus. The source added that Ellis has not been forthright with the White House about it. Ellis typically doesn't wear a mask at the White House and a senior official says she was at a Christmas party for senior staff on Friday. Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner were at that same party. And the former head of U.S. cybersecurity, Chris Krebs, is suing the Trump campaign after one of its lawyers allegedly said he should be killed. President Trump fired Krebs after he said the presidential election was, quote, the most secure in American history. In turn, Trump attorney Joseph DiGenova said in a Newsmax interview that Krebs should be, quote, drawn and quartered and taken out at dawn and shot, end quote. Well, on Tuesday, Krebs filed a lawsuit against the Trump campaign, to Genova and Newsmax. Krebs' accusations include defamation, emotional distress, and creating a risk of imminent physical harm. The Genova has said that his statements were sarcastic and hyperbole. And with the president issuing and considering a number of pardons on his way out of office, a major pardon having a major impact. Judge Emmett Sullivan has formally dismissed the criminal case against President Trump's former national security advisor, Michael Flynn. It comes after Flynn's pardon by President Trump last month. In Judge Sullivan's opinion, he critiqued Trump's pardon of Flynn, noting that the pardon does not make Flynn innocent. Flynn lost his job after lying to the FBI in early 2017. He pleaded guilty twice. Meanwhile, on Capitol Hill, the House has passed this year's annual National Defense Authorization Act. The $740 billion bill enjoyed bipartisan support and gives soldiers pay raises, modernizes military equipment, and requires more scrutiny before forces withdraw from Germany or Afghanistan. President Trump threatened to veto the bill because the measure doesn't repeal a law that shields Internet companies for being liable from some content posted on their sites. The bill also requires military bases named after Confederate figures to be renamed. The House has enough votes to override a presidential veto if Trump acts on his threat. And speaking of military bases, controversy continues at one of the nation's largest, Fort Hood. More than a dozen officers and enlisted soldiers at the Texas Army Base were either fired or suspended following a rash of violent incidents there, most prominently the murder of Vanessa Guillen. Edwin Piti has the latest details.
4: In total, 14 leaders have been relieved were suspended from their positions. 230 days after Vanessa Guillen's cruel murder, the Pentagon released the findings of an independent panel investigating the case. The report found nine serious failures at the highest levels of Fort Hood's leadership. The findings of the committee identified major flaws with sexual harassment and assault response prevention program from implementation, reporting, and adjudication. Two of them are generals. All of those who are responsible, they do not convince me with this move. (laughs) Roughly 90 stories of sexual assault were found, but only 59 were reported according to the investigators, in addition to 217 testimonies that were never reported. The panel issued 70 recommendations to change the Army's culture. As the Secretary said, we are holding leaders accountable. And we will fix this. Vanessa Guillén's family reacted to the announcement. They say they spoke with army leaders, but are still Um, demanding justice. I'm not okay with this. What I want is for them to rot in jail. The independent panel will stay on to ensure that their recommendations are enacted. That move was confirmed by the Under Secretary of the Army, who sat down with the UN news to discuss details of the report.
1: This was a call to
4: arms for us. It's, it's time for us to become serious about the scourge of sexual harassment and sexual assault. It's time for us to become serious about creating a, a safe and healthy environment for our soldiers. Andrea, as we speak, the independent panel is testifying on Capitol Hill about their nine findings and 70 recommendations. The session will be key for the necessary changes needed within the Army because it is Congress who has the responsibility and the power to approve the funds to transform the programs that protect soldiers from becoming victims of sexual assault, especially programs like SHARP, where is the program that soldiers have the opportunity to go and denounce firsthand any type of sexual assault between uh, between the army lines reporting live in capitol hill back to you andrea
0: thank you edwin for all those details more of you news after this short break Imagine a daily newscast that speaks to you about your world in plain English. Each weekday, we partner with Hispanic America's most trusted news source to bring you the stories from home and abroad that matter to you. The effects of COVID-19 will be felt for decades to come.
4: Both parties are very far apart.
0: Approximately
1: 250,000
0: people have lost their lives. U News covers the news of your world and makes it easy to understand. Your world, your news. U News on Fusion. Welcome back to U News. In Washington, the long-awaited National Museum of the American Latino might become a reality before year's end. A Senate committee advanced the proposal, and it's now waiting a full Senate vote and could land on President Trump's desk for a signature. The museum would be the first new Smithsonian since the National Museum of African American History and Culture opened in the year 2016. Joining us now is Eduardo Rodriguez. He's the president and CEO of Friends of the American Latino Museum. Thank you so much for joining us today, to the Welcome.
2: Thank you for the invitation, I'm glad to be here.
0: Advocates have been pushing for this museum since the mid-90s, so tell us a little bit about the history behind this project and where we're at right now.
2: Absolutely. Well in 1994, the Smithsonian Commission, a study called The Willful Neglect, recognizing the omission, um, somewhat intentional omission, of American Latino stories in, across all the Smithsonian museums. It wasn't, though, until 2003 and 2004 that Javier Becerra, the current attorney general in California, and Ileana Ross-Layton, the first Latina in Congress and now retired, uh, they, they proposed the bill to create a commission to study the viability of such a museum. That did not pass until 2008 under George W. Bush. It was enacted under Obama. And they, and they uh, submitted their uh, congressional report uh, in 2011 with a series of recommendations on what it would take, where this museum might go, and how much it would cost. Recognizing that the National Mall has limited space, they identified uh, three different locations that could be the home for a future American Latino museum, following in the footsteps of the tremendous success of the African American Museum. Since 2011, we have reintroduced legislation to pass the National American Latino Museum Act. And as you stated, uh, this bill is finally uh, nearing the finish line. It passed the House in July and now is poised to be raised this week. Um, And uh, the Senate has strong bipartisan support. So we're very excited about the possibility that this will be passed into law and we will be that much closer to the creation of a Smithsonian National American Latino Museum.
0: In your opinion, why do Latinos need a dedicated museum? One detractor from the Heritage Foundation argued that such a museum would only promote a fragmented society or perpetuate a notion of victimhood. What's your reaction to that?
2: Well, uh, I strongly disagree with that. You look at the Native American History Museum, and I don't think anyone believes that. They are at the root uh, of our American uh, history. The Native American Museum presents such an an important story that is often um, segmented to smaller portions of the existing Smithsonian. The Smithsonian has recognized they do not have the space in their existing museums to be able to tell 500 years of history. Look, when you are in a history class in elementary school, uh, K through 12, you learn that the pilgrims came uh, and that as they moved west, you know, they began to establish what we see as our nation today. But they omit. Uh, strong pieces of history that highlight St. Augustine, Florida, was the first city in our nation. Santa Fe was the first capital in our nation. 500 years of stories of missions and cathedrals, churches, uh, the municipalities that really are the foundation for some of our biggest cities around the country. It's not about segmenting. It's about unifying. Uh, just like the African-American Museum brings together very important and hard conversations, the American Latino Museum will do the same. Thing. There are strong divisions within the Latino community as well. What is the role of the Spanish versus the Mexican, the indigenous population, Puerto Rico by itself? How do we bring all these stories together? We recognize the what makes us different and what makes us uh, unified as a Latino and Latina uh, population. And I think that's what we will see in an American Latino Museum, a strong highlighting of the role of our community in, in the building of such a strong nation.
0: Well, it's very interesting. Let's go ahead and wait and see what happens. It'll be interesting to see that museum. Thank you so much for your time, Ms. Suardo Rodriguez, President and CEO of Friends of the American Latino Museum. Have a great day. You too. Thanks for listening to You News, the podcast. Don't forget to follow U News on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate and review, and join us tomorrow for a new episode. Until then.